The scripture text for this morning's message is found in the first epistle of John, chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's begin with an overview of this short text to get the whole in our minds. And then we'll go back and look at some of its parts. The text begins with a command. There's only one command in the text, and therefore it's probably the main point. First half of verse 15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. And everything else in this text is an argument or an incentive for our obedience to that command. The first incentive is given in the second half of the verse. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, the reason that you should love The Father and not the world is because if you love the world, you don't love God. That's the first incentive. Love for the world pushes out love for God. Love for God pushes out love for the world. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus taught it, John learned it. That's the first incentive. Now, verse 16 gives an explanation or a support for why this argument holds. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. So let's leave out for a moment those three phrases in the middle and put the argument together and see how it sounds. The reason love for the world pushes out and cannot coexist with love for God is because everything in the world is not of God. And if you love what is not of God, it is a sham to say that you love God. Or to put it the other way, if you love God, you can't set your heart on what is not of God. So verse 16 works as an argument or a support or an explanation for how this first incentive works. Then there are two more incentives. John could have rested his case at the end of verse 16 and said, so don't love the world, love God, because if you love the world, you can't love God, and nobody wants to be in that position, do you? But he doesn't rest his case there. He gives two more arguments, two more incentives for why we should not love the world, but should love the Father. The first is in the first half of verse 17. The world is passing away, and the lust of it. In other words, nobody buys stock in a company that's going bankrupt. Nobody houses his soul in a sinking ship. No reasonable person lays up treasure where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do they? 
To set your heart on the world is to ask for misery and destruction in the end. The world is passing away. But that's not all it says. It says the world is passing away and the lust of it. In other words, if you share the lust of the world, you pass away. You lose not only your treasure, you lose your life. Because if your life is made up of desires and lusts for the things of the world and they pass away, you go with them. Then the third incentive is given in the second half of verse 17. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, notice the opposite of loving the world is not only loving God, but doing God's will. Love of the Father is referred to in verse 15. Doing the will of the Father is referred to in verse 17. And you know well how those fit together. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John said here in chapter 5, verse uh, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So loving the Father in verse 15 and doing the will of the Father in verse 17 are not separable. They are always together. If you love God, you love what God wills. It's a sham. It's empty talk to say, oh, I love God. And then he tells you to do something and you say, I don't love that. That's a sham. That's empty talk. John writes this book to expose those kinds of empty phrases. I love God. I don't like what God tells me to do. That's not possible in John's understanding of the love of God. Now, let's summarize the argument. One commandment. Don't love the world. Love God. Three incentives or three arguments. First, if you love the world, you don't love God. Second incentive. If you love the world, you perish with the world. It's passing away. Third incentive. If you love God and do his will... You have eternal life and abide forever. Three good arguments for why this morning you ought to engage with all your might against the love of the world that springs up again and again in your and my heart. Now, let's meditate on some of the parts of this text. Let's take this last verse first. These two arguments, these two incentives to get the love of the world out of your heart and to get the love of the Father in. And I want to pose this question. Since this text, verse 17, makes eternal life dependent on loving the Father so much that you do His will, how does it relate to saving faith? How does love for God relate to saving faith? You see, we are well taught as a people of God that you are saved by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16.31, Ephesians 2.8. We are not as well taught what this faith is. What is it? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? And if we are courteous to John and let him fill up his own words rather than us filling them up, I think we will learn a lot about what faith means for John. 
when John says, not loving the world, but loving the Father, enough to do his will, results in your abiding forever. And yet he also teaches, as he does in John 5.13, that if you believe you will have eternal life. If you put those two things together, what you see is John believes there is no saving faith that is not love for God. There is no love for God that does not have within it saving faith. People that try to separate the two don't think the way John thinks. And John is the inspired apostle. Therefore, we should shape our thoughts to his thoughts and say, no saving faith where there's no love for God. Now, Jesus taught this. He taught it to John. John recorded it. John 5, 32. Jesus said in those verses to the people who weren't believing on him, I know that you do not have love for God within you. I have come in my father's name and you don't receive me. How can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you people don't love God. You love the praise of men. Here I come offering myself and you don't believe. Obviously, you don't believe. You can't believe unless you love God. So Jesus taught no love for God, no faith is possible. Where there's no receptivity and delight in the character and beauty and power and wisdom and goodness of God, Somebody come along and offer you himself, calling himself God. You won't have him. You want him. What good is he? So John picks this up. And in chapter five, you might want to look at this. In chapter five, verses three and four. He relates love for God and faith in the same way Jesus taught. Verse three of chapter five says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, what does that mean? It means that love for God is the power that overcomes obstacles to disobedience and transforms obedience from a burden into a joy. Jacob loved Rachel and served seven years for her. And the Bible says it seemed to him as a short time. Why? Because he loved her. If you love God, the things he asked you to do will not be insurmountable burdens. Love for God gets you over, overcomes the worldly temptations to disobedience. But look at verse 4. He says the same thing, but he uses a new word. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our, and he could have said love for God, but he said faith. Faith is what overcomes the world. Faith conquers disobedience. Faith renders the commandments of God a delight rather than a burden. So if you just, if you read these things in connection, what you see from John is that there is no saving faith that does not have as a part of it or a ground for it the love of God. And there really is no love for God that's worth a toot unless it includes trust in God and reliance upon God. You just can't rend these things. Now, if you grasp that, it, it helps you see 
a lot of other passages in the New Testament in context. We wonder how in the world did Paul and James say some of the things they said about love for God in relationship to faith in Christ unless this is so. For example, Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God, right? And are called according to his purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it ever entered into the heart of man, God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Let him who has no love for the Lord be accursed. James chapter 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You cannot separate them. Nobody loves God who doesn't trust Christ. Nobody trusts Christ who doesn't love God, his father. Now you can see what John is trying to do in verse 17. He's trying to show us that loving the Father and freeing ourselves from the love of the world is not optional. It is not icing on the cake of saving faith. Nothing in the world is more important this morning for you than doing whatever you've got to do to love God. It is the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All the law and the prophets hang on this commandment with the command to love your neighbor. Now, I know that in a group this size, many of you are saying, well, that's probably true, but I don't feel very much love for God this morning. There are two possible explanations for that. One is that you may not be born again. And the other is that you may be born again and have fallen into a cool, lukewarm frame of heart in these days for some reason. You may be a cultural or hereditary Christian this morning. That is... You might have learned that there are words to say, there are places to go, there are habits to perform in order to be identified as a Christian because that's socially convenient in your circles perhaps or mom and dad or some of my peers at a crucial age did all those things. And I started doing them. I'm still doing them. But I have never experienced the work of the Holy Spirit begetting something new in my heart making me love him more than I love the world. Henry Martin was a missionary to India in the last century, a brilliant young linguist who translated the the New Testament into Hindustani and on his way into other languages. He died at 31 and left a mark on that great land in India. He was saved, converted resoundingly in the university in England, and he wrote four years later this description of his conversion. The work is real. I can no more doubt it than I can doubt my own existence. 
the whole current of my desires is altered. I am now walking in quite another way, though I am incessantly stumbling in that way. Now that is a beautiful way to describe conversion and the subsequent Christian life. The current, the river, the flow of my desires was altered away from the world onto God. But I keep stumbling in this way. Isn't that great? We all know that's true. Those of us who've experienced that new birth, there has been a fundamental change. But we stumble so often. But some of you may not have ever experienced that decisive work of God taking out the heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh, and begetting love to God. So to you, I want to say this. Peter, in his letter, said, We are born again by the living and abiding Word of God. So number one on your agenda today, and until it happens, should be pouring over the Word of God. Crying out to Christ that he would open the eyes of your heart that you might see the Father and know the Father. Pleading with the Holy Spirit that he would take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh and circumcise your heart so that you love God with all your heart and with all your soul. Put away and forsake all known sin. Give yourself wholly to the means of grace that he has provided. And don't leave off until you know he's done it. I'm new because he said... If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. A token prayer here, a token prayer there, a token church attendance here, a token act of kindness there will not impress God that you want to be born again. We have made the new birth experience far too simple. It is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It changes you. It gives you a new nature. It directs the flow of your affections in a new direction. There is another possibility, however, and I pray this is the one that is more characteristic of you who say, I don't feel much love for God, and that is that you are born again. You can remember a time when you were so changed, loving God, counting Christ more valuable than the world was real. The world was rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And now you languish in some lukewarmness and some lack of love to God. And my prescription to you is really not any different than the prescription for those who are not yet born again. Because the same word that begets life fans life into flame again. The same spirit that took out the old heart and put in a new one can rejuvenate that heart. The same Christ who opened your eyes to the Father at the first can show you the Father afresh and cause you to fall down and worship and love him today. So don't be content with lukewarmness. Go for passion in your love with Christ. Whichever those groups you're in this morning, and I hope many of you are in a third group, namely that you're here full of love to God this morning because of who he is. Whichever one you're in, though, let's attend for the last few minutes of this message, on what this text has to say about love for the world and how not to do it. Pray. This is my suggestion to you. 
I've been reading recently in a book I just found called God's Word for God's World. I read about eight conversion stories in the last few days. It's amazing how God uses God's Word to convert people in the midst of all manner of situations. Many stories are of a person sitting in a church service and all of a sudden it happens. They know it has happened. God has made them his own. God has given them new taste buds. God has put them in his kingdom. It is irreversible. They will never return to love for the world. And you should pray as I preach for these last few minutes that God do it. It's his word. I just want to say it over again. Verse 15. Don't love the world. If you love the world, it means that love for God is not in you. Everybody loves something. There isn't a person in this room who doesn't want something. We are by nature craving, desiring, longing people. There's a spring of needs deep in our heart. But when I thought of that phrase, and I wrote that down yesterday, spring of needs, I said, that's a really awkward phrase. A spring bubbles up, it gives out, it overflows, needs suck in What's a spring of needs? So I shifted the image in my mind to this. Deep within every person's heart, there's a drain like at the bottom of a swimming pool with the filter turned on. And it is just sucking and sucking and sucking and longing and desiring and wanting. But it can't suck air and drink water at the same time. If you try to suck in and satisfy yourself with the air of the world, you will not be able to pump the water of God. And your motor will burn up because you were made to pump water, not air. What's the world? I know that's a troubling question that's on many of your minds. What is this world we are not to love? Verse 16 characterizes it in three ways. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's take that last one for just a moment. The pride of life. Hardly anybody who reads this in English understands it for the first time. Well, the reason is because the term life, the Greek term bios, does not mean the state of being alive. It means livelihood. It's used, for example, in Mark 12, 44, where Jesus looks at this poor widow who comes in and all these rich people are throwing their livelihood in and she pulls out her two copper coins, throws them in, and Jesus points to her and he says, she gave more than everybody because she put in all of her bios. It's the same word as used right here. All of her life went in there. Livelihood, all that supports life. John uses it in chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, Anyone who has this world's bios and closes his heart against their need doesn't have the love of God. And it's translated goods. Anybody who has the possessions, the life of the world, and closes his heart against a needy person doesn't have the love of God. So what does it mean when he says the pride of life? It means pride in possessions. Pride in what you've got. 
pride in your powers and your possessions to support your life. doesn't mean pride in being alive. That would make any sense. Now, if that's what it means, you can catch on to how these three characteristics of the world relate to each other. The first two, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, are what we feel when we don't have something and we want it. And the third is what we feel when we've got it. Pride. I got it. The whole world runs on these two things. Covetousness and pride. Greed and boasting. The whole world, the whole world and everything in it, John says, is driven by the desire to have and the pride that you do have. But notice these two ways of saying greed or lust. Why does he mention two? I think it's because there are two general classes of pleasures that we're after. The pursuit of pleasure and pride in possessions are these two things, but there are two kinds of pleasures. There are bodily, sensual, physical pleasures, and there are aesthetic intellectual pleasures. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. You see, John is not naive about human nature. He is not a cultural Christian. He knows the world is more than Hennepin Avenue or Franklin Avenue. He knows that there is the lust of the gutter and there is the lust of the gourmet. He knows that there is the lust of penthouse and the lust of Picasso. He knows that there is the lust of the Orpheum and there's the lust of the Ordway. Anything in your life can drag your heart away from God, except God. Anything in your life can take your heart away from God. If you don't have it, it can fill you with passion to get it. And if you've got it, it can fill you with pride that you've got it. And in either case, you're an idolater. And this book ends. I've always wondered why this book ends the way it does. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Where'd that come from? It came from chapter 2. Verse 15 through 17. Against the pride of life, the Apostle Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So at Bethlehem, let there be no boasting in possessions. Let there be no boasting in what you've got or what you've accomplished. Boast only in God. Boast only in the Lord, lest you become an idolater. And against the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the psalmist gives us a great word. He says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. Really? Someone will say, shouldn't I desire dinner? 
Shouldn't I desire a job if I'm unemployed? Shouldn't I desire a spouse? Shouldn't I desire the child in my womb? Shouldn't I desire a healthy body, a good night's rest, the morning sun, a great book, an evening with friends? No, you shouldn't. Unless it's a desire for God. Do you want dinner for God's sake? Do you want this child for God's sake? Do you want your job because you might find more of God there to delight in and to enjoy? Do you want a spouse because in that spouse you might see and know and delight in and fellowship with God? Do you want a healthy body and a good night's rest and the morning sun rising and a great book and an evening with friends because you have an eye to God in it? If not, it is idolatry. I don't think we've gotten very far in our understanding of how God besotted the Bible is. How radically God-oriented all of life is. We compartmentalize so much. And John says, if you love anything in the world, you don't love God. You can't water that down. The only thing I can make of that, since God made much of the world, and it is good and beautiful, is that the only love for things in the world that is not idolatry is love for things in the world that is love for God. St. Augustine prayed a prayer in the Confessions. Outside the Bible, it's probably one of the most important sentences I've ever Read. It has made more difference in my life. It has helped me handle things outside Scripture better than any sentence that I know. It goes like this. He lifts his hands to the Lord and he prays. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. I'll say it again. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. That's the heart of this text. That's what John is trying to say. And so I close, brothers and sisters, by urging you and myself not to love the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Love only God. And if you love God, then every room you enter will be a temple of the love of God. Every work or act you perform will be a sacrifice of love to God. Every meal you want and eat will be a banquet of love with God. And every song you hear will be an overture of love to God. And if there is any desire of the flesh or any desire of the eyes that cannot be love for God, we will 
put it away. So that we can say with the psalmist and with John, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing that I desire on earth besides thee. Let's pray. Lord, for many of us, this word of John, which is such an advanced word, seems to be so far out in front of us that we wonder if we could ever catch up. Forgive us. I know we can't unless your Holy Spirit come and awaken our hearts with love to you and cause all the things in the world, the crude and the cultured, to lose their importance in comparison to you. Grant, O God, that you fill us with love to yourself so that we can do your will and abide forever. We unite our hearts and our voices just now, Lord, to express our love to you. Receive it, I pray, and enjoy it. Delight in our last act of worship. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's children said, Amen.